With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. to the wizard and the bruiser the blood the blood's everywhere <laughs> i am the wizard jake young uh and i'm the bruiser the fun big bruiser holden mcneely and uh we are your weekly delve into the uh, nightmarish history of all of your favorite nerd shit <laughs> and uh this week uh we got a little bit of a hype train going we uh we got uh, a taste of uh, The Last of Us Part 2. Yes. Uh, not The Last of Us 2. The Last of Us 1 Part 2, idiots. <laughs> what, you thought that story had a complete and satisfying ending? <laughs> You're dumb. Yeah, I was um, I, I was shocked a little bit that they, I mean, I shouldn't have been shocked, but I really did feel like it stood on its own. But either way, that's fine. I'll, I'll play another one. I'll definitely play another one with an older Ellie. Ellie? Mm. Ellie. That's uh yeah 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 it's it, there's one thing I'm looking for it's a lesbian survivalist uh, zombie apocalypse game <laughs> that wasn't a joke that <laughs> yeah. fucking sounds rad that sounds pretty kick ass but let's so of course today's episode is about the game dev the famous game dev company Naughty Dog uh now the weird so I feel like one of the weirdest things that Naughty Dog kind of inhabits in the game space is that they produce these triple A level uh, games on a first-party basis for Sony. Like, ever since the PlayStation 1, uh, they have just been churning out these top-tier, you know, uh, what's what are they called, the PlayStation Classics? Like, the things yeah, that you, yeah, 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 PlayStation Classics, instant PlayStation Classics, in mm. a way that fully utilizes the software to the point where it's mind-boggling, especially with the game we'll get to later, Uncharted 4. But it's like they seem to kind of, like, know the secret to how to f- utilize every console to its fullest extent. Not every console, just goddamn Sony consoles. Just PlayStations, just every time PlayStation consoles. And the same way that you think of uh, Nintendo as having these like premium, like once-in-a-lifetime experiences, uh, Sony never quite had that, but they had Naughty Dog. And uh, as we're going to go into it, Naughty Dog just kind of saw... That is like Naughty Dog's entire... Uh, history is kind of about filling niches and like seeing where the game industry is going to go and and like and 
pulling it off impeccably. And making something that's just perfect for the time. But let's take a little trip into the way, way back machine. Tron's a movie during this time. PC gaming in the 1980s. PC gaming on the 1980s. 10 frames a second. Most of it sucks. God save the queen. It's 1984. I don't remember if that song came out any time around that time period, but we're starting there, 1984, two years after the birth of a little boy named Holden McNeely. Uh, They were uh, an independent developer um, named Andy Gavin and Jason Rubin. They created a game called Math Jam. So here's the thing you have to understand (laughs) about the founders of Naughty Dog, Jason Rubin and Andy Gavin. as always, it keeps coming back to one's got the technical know-how mm. and one's got the big dick razzle-dazzle. Yeah, one's the cool bro dude who likes surfboards and roller skates. The other guy sits in a, alone and sad, and he's just hammering away at the keyboard. So the uh, Which one is us in that department? I feel like we each got a bit of both. <laughs> one's the, okay. Yeah, I'd I mean, say I'm kind of a rock and roll uh, sad boy. I'm like a Gygax and a Waz. <laughs> um... I mean, I'm the fat one. There's always a fat one, and in this, in this one, there was also a fat one, and that was Andy Gavin. Um, so Jason Rubin, Andy Gavin, two nice Jewish boys uh, with rich ass parents, so they were able to afford PCs mm. in, or you know, personal computers in the uh, 1980s, which at the time were severely underpowered. They weren't standardized. So if you they wanted were... to make a game for the Apple II, it wouldn't run on anything else. It wouldn't even run on later Apple IIs. Everything had to be super, like, specifically ported, which resulted in a lot of shitty games. Yes. But it also meant that... It was called a budgetware. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It also meant, though, that very small teams could make uh, hit software because the each individual niche was so desperate for content. Yes. Uh, so, they were working with the programming languages Lisp and C++. Mm-hmm. Uh, they named their company probably based on the name of their first game. They called it Jam Software originally. Do you know what it stood for? Um, Jason and Andy's Magic. Oh. I'm so happy you knew that fact. No, That's I got amazing. here's this is, this is maybe, No shit, they changed it later on. <laughs> this might be my favorite part of the story is the early years because the these, aren't, game? Like, these aren't, aren't dude, these, these, these are kids. These are literally 14-year-old, 15-year-old children making these games out of, like, a hobby. And uh, the, the split of divide was Jason Rubin was the cool art director guy. And uh, Andy Gavin was the coder that could, like, heavily optimize the games to run way smoother than other games on this very limited hardware. And Gavin, the crazy, klutzy, nerdy one, uh, they were working on a game, uh, a skiing game. Well, one day, Gavin accidentally copied bootleg games over the only copy of the ski game they had. So then he had to rewrite the entire game uh, and named it Ski Craze within the weekend. Mm -hmm. And then they put it out. I watched gameplay footage, man. This game is trash yeah yeah it's pc gaming in the 1980s it's all trash yes it's like the only games that are even remotely compelling are like text-based adventure games because there's nothing to like scroll by at like two frames a second this is also also super key to understanding Mm -hmm. naughty dog is uh uh yeah gavin like straight laced focused good programmer jason rubin party dog like when you like the name naughty dog is all jason rubin 
and he was the art director for all of this, all of their collaborations. And his drawing style is the most 1990s, <laughs> 80s teenager mm-hmm. I've ever seen in my entire life. It's all like <laughs> radical, ugly dudes, like with weird face proportions. If you uh, go online, you can find. Uh, actually, in Crash, you could see the Naughty Dog original yeah. face logo. It is a grotesque, like, homunculus <laughs> of gross, like, gross shit. Uh, I, it's, I just, seeing his drawings and seeing their artwork from that era, I flashed back so hard to, like, my own school notebooks. And their and their games are, I, I mean, Dream Zone in 1988, an adventure game where the player becomes trapped in his own dream because of a scientist's elixir and must escape it. Uh, also, man... Look up gameplay footage of Keith the Thief. Mm. Woo, that is ugly, man. Yeah, it yeah. is. I like, I don't know. I just, I appreciate so much whenever I see any prolific in, in, artist of any kind, mm-hmm. early work, and it's just trash. Mm-hmm. It makes me feel so good, you know, because I put out a lot of trash, and I still put out a lot of trash, so I'm just, you know, it gives me hope, at Jake. We talked uh, in the Cartoon Network episode, though, we talked about how in the 80s and 90s, this ugly aesthetic was cool. That's true, yeah. So even though at the time, I, I, even though now we're like, oh, this is this is the most eye-gougingly awful-looking thing I've ever seen in my life. At the time, I'm sure old suits were like, you got a lot of chutzpah, kid. I like the way this looks. Um, So they had a lot of early success, especially for a two-person underage team. And they got picked up by Electronic Arts, which, you know, they weren't, like, as monolithic, but they were a video game publisher. So uh, uh, Jam... Uh, started signing up with uh, EA as under Naughty Dog. Yeah, to get away from Bodville, mm-hmm. which was the uh, publisher they were working with before. And we'll actually see this happen later on, too. They're constantly sort of getting away from the old publisher and moving on to the new publisher, but so they have to make changes. In this situation, that change was their name from Jam Software to Naughty Dog. Now, do you know the uh, lore about how they got signed with EA? No, 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 sir. So, you know, they're hot shots. They'd been selling a few games uh on their own ea brought them in to tour the studios or you know the the offices and uh very casually they come across what looks like a reverse engineered hacked version of the then newly released sega genesis mm. uh, actually there's actually a lot of uh crossover between the naughty dog story and the genesis and the uh sega story huh. going all the way back to episode one of wizard and the bruiser um but that is illegal uh, that, in fact, was a prototype that EA was using that they would eventually use to bypass Sega's copy protection for the Genesis. And EA uh. had a whole run of these uh, semi-bootleg, unofficial sports games and other releases that they released for the Genesis without paying the uh, licensing fee. There was, like, a lawsuit. It's a part of video game lore, how EA, like, tried to— I'm pretty sure yeah. we're going to do a whole episode yeah. on EA at some point um, But this, Jason Rubin— Seeing this in the middle of EA's offices was like, hey, uh, quick question. What the fuck is that bullshit? And the EA rep was like, was like this bullshit? This is some fucking bullshit right here. <laughs> and EA was like, haha, funny story. How would you like a publishing contract and seven non-disclosure agreements about what the fuck you just saw? So... They got the deal to yeah. make a Genesis game called for EA. Rings of Power in 1991. Is that the game you were talking yep. about? And yes. this game has a very like big cult. Still has a following. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things. I feel like most Western RPGs uh, before 
basically before the 32-bit era just is like almost the, the graphics and everything are too simple and the gameplay systems are too complex that I just never got around to it. Right. Uh, if you really want to like beat your dick against a wall, try and play like. Hey, old- I couldn't tell you how many times I've beaten my <laughs> penis against a wall, but let's move on to the rings of power, Jim, uh, please. Uh, so it's a it's a very immerse it's a very complicated Western RPG yep. with various classes and a, and what they claimed at the time was the biggest game world ever conceived. Over a hundred NPCs. I looked at a little quick play earlier. Um, really enjoyed it. I, I it, it looked like a fun game. I, I think a lot of the draw of it was it was a lot more like adventure RPGs that were happening on PC mm-hmm. at the time. But this was, of course, on console. Therefore, um, uh, you could kind of scratch that itch on console, um, which was which was kind of nice. And really, I was looking at it, and I was a Sega Genesis owner. I wasn't really into that type of game back in the day, but it was definitely one of those games where I was like, man, I kind of wish I'd played this. Mm-hmm. This looks really cool and, like, complex in a simple way, uh, displayed way, though. You know, kind of... Um. But uh, issues came up in production, and uh, EA, despite the fact that you know uh, Jason and uh, Andy were very proud of this game and poured their heart and soul into it, it was the culmination of this kind of of this love of game making that they had fostered throughout their youth. Uh, the production for the cartridges was too expensive, and EA decided to cut it off and uh, use the available production capacity to make more Madden games. In addition to all the fuck fuckery of the copy protection uh, controversy, which I swear I used to know a lot about, but that was months ago when we were researching <laughs> Sega stuff, and it all just flushes down the toilet. My God, I have the worst memory of, of John Madden football for the Sega Genesis. I um, think it was Madden 94. Uh, my brother, I would, I would hail Mary the ball down the field for a touchdown every single time. I used to play with my brother who would force me to play with him. And every time I scored a touchdown, which was pretty much every time I got the ball, he would punch me really hard in the arm. Oh, like uh, not like a corrective, like, ah, you old son of a gun. No, like, just no. full swing. Like by the end, I was like seeing sparks and my arm was just throbbing. Oh, that's abuse. Yes, yes. So that's why I, I think I don't like uh, – playing competitive games <laughs> I don't like it's like a Pavlovian thing mm-hmm. if I win a competitive game I feel bad I'm still scared of teenagers on the subway holding basketballs because I think they're gonna go think fast and throw it at my head <laughs> even though I don't know that <laughs> I'm just conditioned that if someone's holding a basketball it might go flying at my head that's why I always if I get on a subway train and someone's holding a basketball especially if it's a kid I point at them and say don't <laughs> fucking do it and then i sit down and i mumble to myself for the rest of the trip mm-hmm. but of course we should probably return to the situation no. uh so this situation okay so the fiasco with rings of power what can we talk about we're getting we're getting to way of the warrior right yeah yeah okay. uh, soured very them, excited about way soured the them on the idea of cartridge-based media <laughs> which means they were a fit like they did not care about nintendo they did not care about sega and uh, the two of them had a brief falling out where they went their separate ways and went to, like, college and at grad school. Andy oh. Gavin was actually studying at MIT. Oh, wow. Uh, and, uh, you know, his father was uh, actively telling him to get out of game development because it's a waste of his talent as a programmer and that he has a whole future ahead of him that he's, you know, has to foster and, like, put away the childish things. But they couldn't keep the creativity and the charisma of Jason and Andy together, which is why the noticing that Mortal Kombat was a big hit and that oh, fighting so games were just basically printing money, they independently produced 
a game of their own for the 3DO, which had just come out. Which was, of course, d- destined to be a giant success. Just, I mean, <laughs> discs, the exact thing, like the exact thing that broke their hearts earlier, cartridge, was a thing of the past. Yep. Now there's disc-based games that you can print forever for cheap. It solves so many problems. You can, Your games can have videos, and they, they can look so much better than anyone else's games. And in that early 3DO CDI era, there wasn't that many games for CD-based media. No, it was actually, not at all. So this, this, is where, this is where they're kind of modus operandi. They saw a need. They saw a CD-based fighting game needed to happen. It's, and it's both. They're, they're, it's so yeah. good. I r- realize, Jake, I love Mortal Kombat knockoffs. Like, I, I, it's like a new thing I've learned this year. I've been obsessed with... Uh, Tattoo Assassins, which never actually really came out, but look up fatalities for Tattoo Assassins. Primal Rage 1 and 2. Primal Rage 1 and 2, Catfight. I never saw Catfight. Oh, it is so bad. And, dude, I had never heard of Way of the Warrior. Do yourself a favor. Go on YouTube. They've got all the fatalities. It is such a Mortal Kombat knockoff. I think it's more egregious than Mm -hmm. any other Mortal Kombat knockoff I've ever seen with uh, the Australian uh, fighter Shaky Jake (laughs) and uh, Nikki Chan. And all of the voice acting is so, like, hilariously lazy like i don't know what it was about voice acting everything back about day. that game is lazy yeah it's like the 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 there's a character called ninja and this was just one of the voice acting bits like like they, they'll say a little quip when they do the fatality and ninja goes uh reverse harikari and he like literally says like it's reverse harikari but he just it's just like he literally like they woke him up out of mm-hmm. a sleep and just like put a microphone it's like just say reverse harikari reverse harikari <laughs> it's uh, so crazy they they all the you know the the key to a Mortal Kombat style fighting game is that they use photograph sprite photograph based sprites uh, rather than two D like drawn sprites. Yes, and the actual footage, the actual fighting characters you see in Way of the Warrior is Jason and like some of his gym buddies, whoa, and like other randos that he brought in, and they, they re- were photographed in his apartment. Yeah, that makes so. Much since this is a janky looking game. Oh, mama, is it janky? And it is hilarious. It is so great to watch. It's just they, there's literally a guy who's just straight up dressed like Louis Kang, but he's just like a little more overweight Mm -hmm. and like (laughs) tired. They have like those scorpion, like uh, Sub Zero ninja type characters, Uh but you can clearly tell that he's just wearing a bandana over his mouth, (laughs) like not a not a ninja mask. Like he's just has a patterned bandana bandana across his face so uh, uh, incredulously they present this to mark cerny of universal interactive studios mark cerny dear god his whole story what's his story well if if you're listening to this and you're a fan of video games you know already that mark cerny is this legendary figure uh he started way back when he was 17 he worked for atari he created marble madness oh my god he ended up working uh for sega and he was part of the team that made uh Games for the original Master System, the Genesis, Kid Chameleon, Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Kid, he, I love Kid Chameleon. Yeah. Sonic 2. That's um, like the best game on the Genesis. He, his, his, I know it sounds like I'm like playing along like I don't know any of this, yeah. but I really don't know any of this, Jake. Oh, um, <laughs> he, uh, he, uh, he, we're going to get into his work with Naughty Dog, which is very extensive, yes. but he also created Spyro the Dragon for Universal. Ah. He helped design the PlayStation 4's architecture. Whoa. Um, he was uh, so he's still a, he's still like he is still alive incredibly and active. And kicking, yeah. uh, two things you need to know about Mark Cerny. 
Uh, number one, he is an incredibly talented programmer with an innate understanding of how to produce video games and how uh, achieving uh, graphical flourishes that previously were thought impossible is a huge selling point for video games. And so a lot of his talent is unearthing the capabilities of individual hardware to kind of like raise awareness and catch the eye. Well, that's really interesting because that really uh, goes completely parallel with Naughty Dog's yeah. essentially whole career arc uh, starting with Crash Number Bandicoot. two, real weirdo. <laughs> like, I don't want to insult. Like piss in jars. I just, just like weirdo, if you watch. Or- uh, if you, w- I've been watching a lot of interviews with him, and uh, from 1996 or whatever to all the way to 2016, he barely aged. Um, he always has like a very goofy haircut, and he has a very, very like calming yet unsettlingly robotic way of speaking <laughs> that just really makes you think he's gonna snap at any second. But it's just, but while he's still calm, it's very friendly and engaging. But there is a darkness behind it that I can't quite. Place. <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah, Jake. it's uh, Mark Cerny is a very fascinating guy. So of th- so, if there was ever a guy to see your shitty Mortal Kombat game for uh, CD, or no, I'm sorry, for uh, 3DO, and find the p- potential in it somehow. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, when I watched it earlier, I was like, "What is this trash? I can't believe this trash exists. I can't believe this trash is by the same people who made." The Crash Bandicoot series and then the uh, Uncharted uh, Last of Us series. This was also it was also a big risk for uh, the uh, Jason and Andy to take their completed game they they made independently uh, without a publisher for and sure. take it to a game convention to show to publishers that really wasn't how it was done back then. Now with the indie game scene, uh, you know, uh, there's companies like Devolver Digital that will like find like rare you know diamonds in the rough and like elevate them. But uh, at the time, you just had to, like, get hired for a publisher and then hope that, like, that publisher would accept your pitch. Right. Or so, or, or essentially just, just start as, like, a, a, a little weasel in the yeah. company and sort of work your way up, you know, to, the, to being able to just be, pitch ideas. So they saw the niche. They, out of their own, like, set drive, they made the game. And then they had the balls to show it to people, which if you see footage of Way of Warrior – that takes balls to show to people. Yeah, for sure. And uh, Mark Cerny took the bait. He was working for Universal uh, Games, which was a big publisher at the time, and they S- signed them on for th- a three-game deal, mm-hmm. which is a- another, I feel like, huge deal. Yeah, to get signed on, and that's when they, of course, went in development for what would become Crash Bandicoot. Uh, Naughty Dog was set up literally on the Universal Studios lot. It's like they got the money, they got the support. They it was a classic 90s young kids got rich as fuck. It's it's pretty incredible and and this is when we kind of see what you were talking about with the trend of them noticing what the the trends were around them and adapting to that so that they saw that shooters and fighting games were all transitioning to 3d (laughs) and they decided hey why don't we bring that to the platformer and that was kind of where this whole the whole sonic the hedgehog thing came from and what i love the the thought that is really interesting to me is back then they didn't really know you know now the 3d platformer is so commonplace i mean it was we're about you know with crash bandicoot and spyro and you know obviously Mario 64 and all these games that we, we the doors were blown open and that became the the standard mm-hmm. but at the time these are people sitting in a room saying what does 
Sonic the Hedgehog in 3D look like. Right. And and they actually uh, used the, uh, it was codenamed Sonic's Ass Game, mm-hmm. because uh, it was literally uh, joking around about how we would be looking at the main character from from the viewpoint of looking at its ass as it ran, you know, into, into the uh, background. Um, and as the uh, game picked up steam, they understood the power of the mascot with uh, Sega, with, as we discussed in the Sonic episode, Sonic becoming a national, worldwide known brand within a year on the strength of the character design and the attitude. Yep. Um, lots of tude, buddy. Lots of tude. And Crash had some fucking tude. Uh, and they got Sony to really like support the game because... Sony needed it. Sony I mean, needed it. Mario 64 was out, and uh, Son- they, this PlayStation didn't have a mascot. PlayStation was also not- They did have Mr. Polygon, which if you look up, is a terrifying <laughs> demon face that they thought maybe would be cool, but it's not, because it's a terrifying demon face. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like, you have to remember, too, PlayStation is in kind of the same situation Naughty Dog's in at this point in history. They don't have the namesake. They're they're brand new. They're being looked at like, you guys, really? You're also going to make a, a console? Are you serious? To compete with Sega and Nintendo? Are you out of your fucking mind? I mean, that's, you know, until people got their hands on those consoles and realized that these this was actually legit, I mean, they were looked at just like any other one of those kind of throwaway consoles that came before, like Jaguar and whatnot, stuff like that, you know? I mean, they had to prove themselves, and so they really were looking towards Crash to be that flagship mascot that, at the time, all consoles really needed. <laughs> and uh, I also want to say, before we get into the Crash stuff, they did have to uh, throw out their previous game, which was Allosaurus and uh, Dynstein. I which, did uh, not hear about it this. It is a side-scroller based on uh, time-traveling scientists who were genetically mer- merged with dinosaurs. So I think that was a good move on their part. That's terrifying. <laughs> um, so... Crash, the mascot, took a lot of work and took a lot of testing. They actually produced their own independent uh, animated short to prove to Sony that uh, the character could support his own merchandising and and, uh, car- and TV shows. There's a song sung by Jim Cummings, uh, who did the voice of uh, Tigger and is like this amazing uh, classic voice actor guy. So the character of Crash was just as developed as the rest of the game because they pitched to Sony that, like, you don't understand. You need a Sonic. We're making the Sonic. He can be in toys. He can be in commercials. We're talking Happy Meals. You need us. And they studied it like scientists. They were like, we need a character that is cute, real, and no one really knows about. That's the kind of animal we need. So they looked up different types of uh, mammals mm-hmm. from Australia, Ma- wombats, potoroos, and bandicoots were the options they went with. That's uh, it's from the echidna school of well, if it's an if it's a barely known mammal, it could look like anything. Uh, they even produced their own independent animated short by the same animation company that made like Animaniacs and uh, Freakazoid, which makes so much sense because Doctor Neo Cortex, the main villain, was hi- heavily, heavily based off of Pinky from Pinky and the Brain, right? Um, and uh, the his sidekick uh, minions were resembling uh, the weasel characters from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So uh, they actually made this cartoon short with the voice of Jim Cummings, who is this legendary voice actor who's done like the voice of Tigger and like half of the half of the cartoon characters you've ever known. Uh, guest super producer Megan, uh, could you please uh, play play a clip of that just so people understand what's happening? 
<laughs> Dr. Cottage is a genius, a mental aberration. He's totally fixated on world domination. The local island creatures are dull and obtuse. Until the evil doctor turns on his juice, he wants them for his troops. They come out in hopes, most especially Crash Bandicoot should have been a genius, but he doesn't quite compute. Crash! Crash Bandicoot! Everything can happen now that Crash is in pursuit. So, has been selected they for were really banking Crash on a multimedia franchise. Like, do you want, like, they were like, guys, listen, Shuhei Yoshida, guess what? We got an orange animal in jean shorts. <laughs> Pay us. Uh, yeah, they, they they really went all the way. They even, and, and also for the music, they got uh, Mark Mothersbaugh's company, uh, mm-hmm. Mutado Musica, yep. to do to do the soundtrack. He got this guy Josh Mansell, who uh, was known for Johnny Mnemonic's The Interactive Movie, uh, to do all the music. It was uh, an urban chaotic symphony was the description they went with. And Mark Mothersbaugh would be end up being, of course, from Debo, mm-hmm. and who did the soundtrack to God so many the theme um, to Rugrats to uh, so many. Movies. So much stuff, and he he had he had a lot of interaction with the whole um, Crash Bandicoot soundtrack uh, through all through all the games. Actually, yeah. So in addition to all of this, uh, the game itself with the programming might of Cerny and uh, Gavin uh, ran beautifully on the PlayStation. Yes, uh, the they found extra power like wherever they could in the memory mapping, in the textures, in. Like, they got every ounce of available power that people thought could happen on the PlayStation. And I remember playing this game on a demo stand uh, in the... Uh, on a demo stand in the in a blockbuster and mm-hmm. thinking to myself, holy shit, this is the new thing. Yeah. This is it. This is what it looks like, you know? Uh, one of the... Like, this is just... There's so many simple tricks that they did. Um... But, uh, for example, Mario used uh, what people like to call skeletal animation, where it's just individual pieces kind of moving uh, on a rig, while Crash used a much more difficult-to-program way of animating called vertex animation, where the individual points where the polygons meet are manipulated, which, even though it's harder, gave Crash so much more expression. The fact that his face morphed and that his like ears would dip and all this, it was very expressive. He would react to what's happening on screen. And when he died, he would make like all these different animations. Uh, gave a lot of, uh, conveyed a lot of that attitude, a lot of that uh, cartoony feel that even the N64 at the time wasn't able to produce. Yes, absolutely. Um, so Sony has this in their hands, knows that like, it's a glaring weakness in their own lineup that they don't have a cartoony platformer. So they give Crash Bandicoot front row center featuring on all advertisements at conventions. And I loved those advertisements with Crash Bandicoot showing up with a, with a big bullhorn <laughs> at the Nintendo offices. And you know what I loved so much about the character was instead of uh, Nintendo don't and like Sonic, he's edgy or whatever. Crash was like silly. Crash was like a different thing. It wasn't like I'm so edgy. It was more like I'm a goof bag. I'm ridiculous. I'm just my gonna girlfriend be- has giant hooters. Yeah, whatever. 
ever. Tana. Like, they got rid of her very quickly. <laughs> the bigwigs at Universal were uncomfortable with the size of the Bandicoot girlfriend's bosoms. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, it, it definitely confused me. You know? <laughs> definitely created a lot of furries. Uh, but mm. yeah, I, you know, it, I, he just had a really cool vibe, like a new vibe that was kind of goofy and fun and self-deprecating. I think that was the important part, the self-deprecating vibe of him. He was like, ah, yeah, I'm going to take you down, Nintendo. I'm also a ridiculous uh, Bandicoot-ass moron, you know? The game sells like gangbusters. 6.8 million copies on the PlayStation, the, the one of the highest-selling titles for the PlayStation console. And uh, because it was one of the PlayStation's essential titles, kind of like Mario 64, kind of like all, kind of like uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, it was just a consistent hit and source of revenue for the company. Absolutely. And, uh, they were the, and they were this young team with all this money and all this hype and all this support from their backers. So, like... I watched old PlayStation Underground videos, which was like, yeah, those are great. Uh, and like, no, like you could tell just how rich they were getting because like uh, Jason Rubin would like drive up in a Ferrari and be like, "Hey guys, want to see what we're working on on Crash 2? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and Crash Two was fantastic. Uh, it was, it was. Um, Man, I just remember getting it and playing it all night. Uh, I absolutely loved it. They just really just kind of improved upon what they had already had going. Uh, my only complaint was it was too short. I remember I pretty much had almost beaten it in one evening. Um, and I was like, damn it, because those games were expensive back then. I was a precious Nintendo boy. I actually never touched any really? Crash games. I was 100% Sega Genesis and then made the jump to PlayStation. I was like, You were way cooler than me. Way into that shit. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, Crash 2 was great. Crash 3 Warped was another was fantastic. They actually made three new engines for that game mm-hmm. in company. Um, three engines so that they could uh, do the jet ski and airplane levels um, and combine that with the engine they had already running. So... You know, um, and that was all uh, done by Gavin, um, st- and also with Stephen White and Greg Omi. Uh, those are the programmers. So, like, literally, they're creating programming languages, or, or they're creating en- game engines in house to like just break new barriers and and up up the ante. And I mean, all of these games, by the way, and all the games we're about to talk about, incredibly well received, mm-hmm. incredibly well reviewed, sold insanely well. Very few complaints about any of this stuff. Even their Mario Kart ripoff Crash Team Racing is considered to be a fantastic kart game. Crash Team Racing is like almost more well received than the rest of the Crash series because like I'm the Crash series is beautiful and a great piece of 32-bit gaming history, but like it's a little stiff. It's like it's you know it it has its peaks and valleys in terms of gameplay, uh, but for sure uh, they never they never but they never got past the peak of Crash One. There were diminishing returns on the Crash series. And uh, when it was time to update uh, to the PlayStation 2 hardware, they decided to start anew with a new franchise. Yes, and uh, this is another situation of they had to make some changes in order to get away from certain companies. So before, it was changing their name from Jam to Naughty Dog, Mm -hmm. and this time they had to let go of the Crash franchise, which was probably a really good thing for them in order for them to stop working with Universal. They wanted to Mm -hmm. get away from Universal. Sony bought them up, and the downside of that was they had to change IPs to something new and get away from Crash, which I think was actually, again, like I said, worked in their favor. So they started working on a little-known game called Jack and Daxter for the PlayStation 2. Another, by the way, interesting thing about Naughty Dog in general, they really only stick with one 
IP for every console <laughs> yeah, generation. Yeah, I've noticed that. Very interesting. Until Last of Us was announced, they were 100% the same IP or one certain IP for each console generation. Really bizarre. So Jack and Daxter took a lot of what they learned from Crash Bandicoot and kind of expanded on it instead of narrow kind of like hallway-like levels. It was a stretching open world that uh, would load in real time. It was like very smooth and fluid. There were very little, like, a lot less loading screens. Um, the animation would uh, actually was very stretch and squashy. It was very organic feeling. It they was very took, lush. Uh, inspiration for the two main characters from manga and Disney animation. Oh um, God, no! J- original Jack design yeah. looks like every I f- fucking I swear to God, like <laughs> I, Jason Rubin's character work is just reminds me so much of my own high school like notebook. <laughs> like yeah, Jack and da- Jack looks like. Every single like bad anime drawing yeah, that yeah. every white kid ever made. <laughs> I got a shoulder pad, goggles, and my hair is eight feet tall. <laughs> <Right>. Anime. <laughs> now they built a, a new engine for that as well. For they created it from the ground up, mm-hmm. um, which was unusual for most games. It was invented. Uh, uh, Naughty Dog. Oh, this was what was unusual. They invented a new programming language that, that was called termed Goal, which was only ever used for the Jack and Daxter series. Um, it was, yeah, in the sense of it being an open-world platformer, it was a huge step up. Now, uh, Jake, I think one of my biggest, you know, kind of curiosities about getting into doing a story about Naughty Dog was mm-hmm. we have Crash Bandicoot, and then we have Last of Us, right, mm-hmm. um, and Uncharted. Uh, and I was just wondering, like, how the fuck did we go from Crash Bandicoot to Uncharted? And I think that I fi- found the answer. Mm-hmm. And the answer lies in Jack and Daxter 2 mm-hmm. uh, in a huge way because it's sort of, this is when it turned from a bright, fun, like silly romp cartoon character kind of platformer to like a dark, gritty cartoon platformer. I mean, by like Jack and Daxter 3, he had machine guns and was stealing cars. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this actually lines up with the fact that at this point in our story, our good friends, the very rich Jewish teenagers who did right, uh, Jason and Andy, part ways with the company. Uh, they go on to start a very dumb mid-2000s startup called uh, Flector, and it failed miserably, but who cares? They're rich. Um, there you go. They, uh, they've since found success in other realms of the gaming sphere. I think one of them works for Oculus now. And, nice. Uh, but they were like, you know what? We're done. Uh, we're leaving. We're going to make even more money somewhere else. And uh, they left the company in the hands of Evan Wells and uh, a very nice foreign-sounding man called Christoph Balestra, <laughs> uh, along with other staff members like Neil Druckmann and Bruce Straley. And, yes, uh, Druckmann is is yeah. a huge figure in in uh, Last of Us, right? Which we'll talk about soon. And these are younger guys who didn't grow up in the '80s PC gaming. These are people that were in love with gaming as it was now, and gaming or now, you know, when PlayStation Two was around. Yeah. And the hit games that they were obsessed with were games like uh, Grand Theft Auto and Call of Duty and all these all these like violent, mature games. The cartoony 
vibe, the age of, like, Sonic the Hedgehog was, like, dead in the water by this it point. It got so dark and so gritty around that time. It was, like, a little, you know, that had to, <laughs> you know, we had to kind of turn the corner on that. And what's funny is actually, which we'll get to in a second, Uncharted actually did try to turn the corner in a little bit on mm-hmm. that um, with having more vibrant, uh, a yeah. more vibrant look. Now, you, uh, you, I love this quote from Eurogamer um, about the Jack and Daxter series, uh, and that is, uh, the Jack and Daxter series remains a fascinating document of the evolution of the action-adventure genre. Its heroes are unstuck in time without a genre to call home. No series has been so willing to switch gameplay styles with such reckless abandon, and the Jack and Daxter trilogy represents a shining example of what happens when a capable developer takes a huge risk. Now, the reason why that is is because the producers were kept away from the creative side. In other words, the business side of things were sort of kept as far away mm-hmm. from the creators as possible to allow them to do their thing. And I'm going to do another quote here from Keith Guaret, who was the visual effects art- uh, artist for Uncharted and Last of Us. He says, It comes with a lot of pros and cons, but I think it definitely is one of our biggest strengths. Looking around at the rest of the industry, and this is something that we do talk about quite a bit, the companies that are doing really innovative, cool things are all the ones that don't have the man management, like the business side, directly injected into the company. Sony's put us in this fantastic position where we don't have any producers. We don't have any interactions with Sony corporate at all on the development. I was uh, watching a retrospective about Naughty Dog, and they talked about how much they valued, you know, there were staff members, and how much they loved the cul- the culture there. That it did have this leftover, like, 90s punk rocky kind of feel to it. Uh, they mentioned a tradition they have of the dog collar which is a, uh, a literal dog collar that is kept in the office that when worn, uh, the wearer can say whatever they want to anybody in the company and not be fired for it. Wow, <laughs> what? That's fucking amazing. Um, so after Jack and Daxter, they're sort of put in this uh, position where they, they want to move on. They want to move on from cartoony looks. Mm-hmm. They want to get into some like real human looking and and they know it's the time mm-hmm. because with the PlayStation 3 they now realize they can make humans look like humans and environments look real. So this is when they go full bore into the sort of just straight up, you know, action adventure uh film like look. They also were aware from uh, growing with Jack and Daxter that the era of like the silent protagonist, the kind of cipher character, isn't as appealing at that moment uh, as a cool character that the player can like aspire to and yes. like project onto more so than just embody. And we can't talk about Uncharted and these types of decisions without highlighting Amy Hennig, who was the writer and director for the Uncharted series. She kind of worked her way up, starting with the Jack games. She actually, her first game was Michael Jordan Chaos in the Windy City. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then she made the, she was uh, assisted on Blood Omen Legacy of Kane, and then was director, producer, and writer for Soul Reaver, which is a huge title. Hey, uh, Holden, were you into Legacy of Kane's Soul Reaver, uh, the vampire, moody, emo, <laughs> like, lore-heavy action series? It was really weird. I played it a lot. <laughs> and at the same time, I was like, I don't even know why I am playing this. <laughs> But I like uh, it. It's because it's- he had no lower jaw, so when he pulled down his <laughs> scarf to eat someone's soul, there was just a rad fucking neck wound that it gets sucked into. I remember, like, I loved huge parts about it, mm-hmm. but I didn't like... What's interesting is a lot of the things I didn't like about it, Amy made a point of 
not having in the Uncharted series. Mm. And that was, it was like way too dark and brooding, kind of like you described. Whereas the Uncharted series, she really wanted to make lush, beautiful environments to contrast what other games were doing at the time. And it's a reason why I am a huge proponent for the Witch, for Witcher 3. Mm-hmm. Because Witcher 3 is like Skyrim, but it's not all fucking dark and like bummed out, which was kind of uh, a thing I didn't like about Skyrim. Is like the world is so dark and so like overbearing and uh, I really appreciated that we can have blood and crazy violence and you know uh, insane dark storylines but contrasted with like these a beautiful lush environment that I can really like take in and breathe in and like fall in love with now people working for Naughty Dog actually considered the development of Uncharted to be the dark days Mm. Uh, there was a lot of conflict it was very expensive management changes are always difficult um the, uh, you know, Naughty Dog between Jack and Daxter and Crash had developed this, had fostered this world-class games animation team. And instead of utilizing them, they decided to go with the new uh, technology of mocap, which, you know, very famously Nolan North in the ping pong ball suit delivering the performances and actually acting out all the action. Nolan North, of course, the voice of Nathan Drake, the uh, main yeah. character in the entire Uncharted series. Um, Beloved main character. Actually incorporating that data in a way that flowed naturally proved to be an, a nightmarish system uh, because a human stride doesn't respond as quickly as a flick of a thumbstick. So, you know, they had to redo and scrap the animation system. Uh, the PlayStation 3, notoriously, I was about is to say, insanely hard to program for very because of the difficult. cell processor. They had to, they had to uh, there were a lot of starts and stops for the process. They, they had to completely scrap giant chunks and reprogram mm-hmm. giant chunks just because it was so damn hard to program for the PlayStation 3, which is why it, a, a huge reason why it fell behind in the console wars of that, of that time to the 360. And given the time, given the expense, given the heartbreak that it took to create Uncharted... Uh, uh, the original Uncharted, it didn't actually sell, like, it did okay, but it wasn't a hit. It wasn't like a runaway, like, kaboom, like Crash Bandicoot. They didn't hit it out of the park. No, it was, it was no, not at all. Uh, and at the same time, it definitely laid a foundation, right? Um, right. For sure. Because uh, after the game went out, usually they take a break uh, of a month. That was another part of Naughty Dog's like cool corporate policies is they would take long breaks after each project was done to kind of recenter and find themselves. They started working on Uncharted 2 immediately. And um, the first footage that they showed off was at E3 and it was the uh, collapsing building set piece. So good. And that's what oh, started so blowing good. people away. It was Uncharted as the set piece, as the action movie you were controlling. It was cutscenes, but you were in it. And as the Boston Globe put it, no video game has ever done a better job of capturing the style and rhythm of the movies. And, of course, Amy Hennig, much like Kojima himself, was a film school dropout <laughs> uh, off of kind of a fluke, ended up doing working on a game. Um, God, what was the stupid name of that game? Electro Cop yeah. for the Atari. And she ended up making the switch to video games through working as an artist on that game. Um, that inspired her to kind of move over. And so, of course, you've got this film major this person who was gonna make movies and now they're making uh, the film experience in a video game and I love the similarities I could actually make between our talk about what it was like to play Metal Gear Solid for the first time and say oh my god video games are starting to play like movies Mm -hmm. and then when I sat down and played Uncharted 2 for the first time and I was like oh my god video games are movies Nathan Drake is handsome he's charming he 
uh, is talking with the player. Like, other, like uh, basically, he, if you're in the middle of a lengthy climbing sequence, Nathan Drake will just kind of like yeah, say to no one in particular, like, "Oh, my arms are killing me." Like <laughs> he, like there was a there was a conversation between the character and the player. Yes. Uh, Nathan Drake was pretty much the anti Master Chief. Yes. Especially at a time when people were getting a little sick, and of Halo. the anti Lara Croft in a lot of ways, like Lara Croft, so confident, mm-hmm. so sort of just like this James Bond superstar in and, jeans, though. Yeah, in <laughs> jeans. Amy Amy Hennig said, "No, let's make let's make a character who's up against the wall at all times while playing the game. Sure, he's able to mow down hundreds of people, but you feel like he's sort of like." Uh, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't know what he's doing. He's he's not confident. He's yeah. he's like, holy oh, shit! How do I get myself <laughs> out of this crazy ass? Oh, wait, situation? can I do my can I do my Nolan North impersonation? No, sure. <clears throat> no, 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 no. It's always like everything's like slipping from under his <laughs> yeah. grasp, and 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 so and that's really kind of how you feel as the player while you're going through this, and not and and nothing more is. Oh my god, that that train just from the beginning of that game that train sequence when you know how hard it was to make that that train (sighs) took so much work uh this the again the playstation 3 was very esoteric hardware to program for um people uh i remember a programmer said once that like programming for the xbox was like uh teaching a class of 20 b students and trying to program for the playstation was teaching a hundred kids that were either a plus students or failures (laughs) Like, just nothing would behave, but, the, like, somehow you could get the average to work and out. And yet, that sequence is, it's perfect, it's it's incredible. It's unbelievable. I recently, you know, watched a video of it again, just, it's so, it's so smooth, and it's so, you know, they just figured out platforming and shoot and, and cover shooting in such a seamless way. And then, of course, uh, so then we move on, you know, to Uncharted 3, and at the same time, uh, uh, when uh, after the success of Uncharted 2, the team split off into two. One went off to work on The Last of Us, and another team went off to work on Uncharted 3. Now, Uncharted 3 came out, had really good reviews, mm-hmm. um, did well, definitely was kind of considered a step down, I think, Highly advanced 2. swarming bug technology. And sand tech. Mm, good, good sand, sand That tech. was a big deal during that time. Journey, Uncharted 3, yeah. It was, it was, Spec Ops The Line also boasted impressive sand tech. <laughs> So, uh, but but The Last of Us was worked on, but led by Bruce Straley, the director, and Neil Druckmann, a uh, creative director. Straley was uh, worked on uh, Gex, Enter the Gecko, and Gex Three Deep Cover Gecko classics. Not and, that great. <laughs> not a, not a good precedent. Uh, Druckmann had been working on Jack Three and Jack X Combat Racing. They're, Better, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and he also wrote comic books for Uncharted and Last of Us. And he wrote a comic book, a graphic novel I'm very interested in called A Second Chance at Sarah about a guy who makes a deal with a demon to go back in time and save his dying wife who fell in a coma upon the birth of their son. I don't know. Sounds very Last of Us-y. Yeah. You know? Just very dark. And, um, man, that game, Jake. Now, here's the thing. The tone of it kind of a lot of people talked about that this ushered in and like kind of embodied the dad gamer uh, era of action games where uh, between that Bioshock Infinite, I'm sure there's a bunch of other uh, examples. uh, The gamers were getting older and they were also getting more aware of like kind of the tropes and like the damseling of women and the idea that like, you know, it's not really like, you know, it's not about rescuing the princess to get a kiss and some cake. But still, gamers want to feel like powerful and protecting, 
of like something they care about. So the so Last of Us had Joel, this older, gruff like warrior, protecting Ellie, this surrogate daughter figure, who also was like kind of uh, you know self independent, and they did a lot of amazing work with AI with her. Um, but it's it was a different kind of power fantasy. It was more somber. It was more uh, depressing, but also beautiful. Uh, the very things that made the PlayStation Three hard to program for also made it a beast at lighting techniques and uh, environmental design. Major motif of the game is life goes on, which if you played the game, you uh, definitely get a big taste of during the giraffe sequence, which is one of uh, my favorite sequences in the game. Absolutely, just breathtaking. Um, and uh, also, I have to say the whole fungus thing is based on an episode of Planet that uh, we Earth. all saw. Yeah, we all saw that Loved fucking crazy it. thing with the zombie with ants. With the zombie ants, where the, they eat the fungus and the fungus takes over. And and yeah, and they they made well, what if that was with humans? Brilliant idea. And honestly, I have to say, I was so zombied out by the time mm-hmm. Last of Us came out, and it was literally the only thing that could have possibly made me want to have like a twenty-hour experience. That was done by a voice actor, by the way. That was clickers, a voice, man. Fucking clickers. Voice actress Misty Lee provided the sound for the clickers. Which I think I think is fascinating, um, and they used uh, photos uh, from Katrina as reference points. Yeah, um, no, there's it's- so many interesting little tidbits about how Last of Us came together. It was clearly a work of art made by people in their prime. Uh, uh, just brilliant storytelling, and of course, we just got the announcement for Last of Us Part Two uh, at the PlayStation Experience. It's probably not going to come out until like 2018, but whatever. It's going to be you know hopefully something amazing. I really thought that was should have been a standalone game to be honest with you but if they make something great out of it i, I trust them at this point yeah. um and, and i have to mention too uncharted 4 which came out this year um actually started with the mass exodus in 2014 of amy hennig justin richmond who is the game director and a voice actor who's supposed to play sam the brother of Na- of of nathan drake all announced they were no longer involved in the game a thing that's very ambiguous and i i want to find out more about as i'm sure we'll know more about why that happened as we go on um Um, But they left, pretty much they scrapped everything, and um, the Last of Us team, Druckmann and Straley, took over. And that game, again, if you want to see the PlayStation 4 pushed to its utter limits graphically and with gameplay, my God, that game is a spectacle. I love it. Um, Boy, oh boy, is it. And storytelling, and, and incredibly filmic. And um, there's something to that. I don't know what it is, but something about really good graphics on a machine that you thought you knew the capabilities of. I don't know why, but there's something there's like a weird paternalistic sense of pride when you look and you look at the little PlayStation box. and You're like, you're doing that. (laughs) You're go, little man. It's so amazing. And uh, and of course, uh, Amy Hennig now is working on a new Star Wars game, which I'm very excited to see um, the outcome of. Uh, so shit, they're good. Yeah, that's, they're really good at it. So, and they keep putting out, uh, wonderful new stuff. And, uh, I mean, what's more, almost more exciting than a last of us part two or what we just got with uncharted part four is whatever the new IP is Mm -hmm. that they are probably working on right now because PlayStation seven. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) For PlayStation seven, uh, in a decade, but man, every time they decide to make a leap and try something new, it works out like gangbusters. So more power to them. And, and I just, I, I hope 
other other devs and creators are also taking a note from them and especially other producers and and business side of video game companies are taking a note from them and saying hey we got to let the creators be creators that's just give the people that love the thing they make enough money to make the thing they want to make yeah and uh speaking of enough money to make the thing they want to make <laughs> Uh, we need you guys to leave a review on iTunes. Please. Tell your friends. Go on social media. Pick if uh, if someone's talking about a subject that we've covered on the show, and you remembered a fun fact, and you're like, "Oh, you know, actually, Mark Cerny uh, invented Marble Madness at age 17." <laughs> you can be like, "Where'd you learn that?" And be like, "Wizard and the Bruiser," and they'll be like, "That's a terrible name for a podcast." We'll be like, "I'll send you a link anyway, friend." And then they're like, "Why is your penis out of your pants?" You're like, "Oh my god." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, it's like one of those dreams and then it turns out to be one of those dreams. What we're trying to say is write and review us on uh iTunes. Uh uh we're already I uh, we're 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 doing great on the rankings and that's all because of you guys um mm-hmm. we're slowly moving up. And the uh, second you let it rate. you 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 slow up even a bit, we will plummet back like noble Icarus. We will so immediately <laughs> plummet. So please please keep listening and please please rate and review us on iTunes. Holden Holden's wearing shoes. I got you shoes did finally. That. I went you and did got that, shoes. People. And it's the winter so I really needed them. <laughs> uh Holdenators Ho on Twitch. Um Holdenators Ho on Twitter. Uh, follow me at Best Jake Young on Twitter and uh, check out the Drawfee channel on YouTube where I uh, sit in and goof around with some very talented cartoonists. Fantastic. I think you'd like it. And Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Woo! All right. Have a good night, everybody. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to cavecomedyradio.com. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.